Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hello, good morning, this is Ken Murray, and welcome to the Michael Reed Show. Coming up, the FAI snubbed the Oireachtas Committee on Transport, Tourism and Sport. Committee Chair Fergus O'Dowd will tell us where we go from here. We'll be hearing about two recent court cases which expose gaps in our mental health service. The Irish Property Owners Association say a rent freeze will devastate the market. They'll tell us why. The new extended bus errand route from Drogheda to Dundalk via Cloughar has been delayed. We get reaction. We hear how much the supermarkets get in their cut from you when they sell fresh cuts of beef, lamb and pork. Democrats in Washington move a step closer to impeaching Donald Trump. Political commentator Larry Donnelly would explain what happens next. And victims of domestic abuse have to queue up in court next to their alleged abusers. And advocates are calling for a change in procedures. We hear why. But first, the expected meeting between officials from the beleaguered FAI and Oireachtas Committee on Transport, Tourism and Sport was cancelled yesterday when the FAI refused to show up, saying it wasn't an appropriate time. To some, this is viewed as a snub, and one would have thought that the FAI, just to be courteous, would have shown up in the interest of good manners. Well, to find out more about this high-profile no-show, I'm joined right now by Fine Gael TD for Loudy Smith and the chair of the Oireachtas Committee on Transport, Tourism and Sport, Fergus O'Dowd. Uh, Fergus, first of all, when did you become aware that the FEI were not going to attend? Well, first of all, we were told that they weren't actually attending on Monday. Uh, there were two phone calls between Ria Walsh, who's the company secretary of the FEI, and uh, the clerk of my committee. And uh, they agreed that they would come in. And the other agreement was that we would have all the senior uh, board members there, including the president. Uh, After four o'clock, that was the last contact we had. And then we just heard at the very last minute that that, that they weren't coming in. Now, they gave their reasons, which obviously we can't compel them to come in. Uh, They didn't come in and we offered them an opportunity to come in next Wednesday when the Minister, Minister Ross has agreed to come in and John Tracy from Sport Ireland. So next Wednesday at 9.30 we'll have the Minister and Sport Ireland and we have a space for the FAI should they wish to come in. 
and that's where things are right now. But okay, obviously, but too, the, it's a big uh, scandal uh, in Irish Sure, ever. but the, the optics here don't look good, that uh, they didn't show up. You've been left sort of waiting um, like a, a jilted bride at the altar, so to speak. Um, but, uh, I mean, I'm allowed to have sales at the altar. <laughs> no, but the point I'm making is, in, in all seriousness, yeah, I mean, of course, yeah. uh, this is uh, bad manners by the FAI. Surely when yeah. you put the invite in in the first instance, yeah. somebody should have said, listen, thanks very much, but actually next Wednesday we have something else on, we can't make it. Of course. Well, the other point was that they tweeted, God bless the FAI tweets, they tweeted on Sunday evening that they were happy to meet with both the Minister and with our committee. So, like, something has happened to change their mind. But look, we're we're still continuing and pursuing the issue uh, because everybody wants change, everybody wants to see the new directors, everybody wants to see the new independent uh, membership of the board. And uh, while, you know, there's a number of new people in the FAI who never sat on the board before, we want completely, these are four absolutely independent, never had any involvement with the FAI directors, one of whom will be the independent chair. And that will give, we believe, a start to the new organisation. But it is it is fraught, it is obviously, and sports clubs up and down the country, you know, we're hopeful through Minister Ross and Sport Ireland are finding a way of making sure that they get their money uh, and that's critical, obviously, and it's the top uh, issue we'll be asking the Minister about on Wednesday. Uh, Daniel MacDonald, who I believe is from RD, is reporting in the Irish Independent this morning that Niall Quinn and Brian Kerr are proposing to split the FAI into two sections, with one department taking responsibility for the distribution of public funds to grassroots soccer. I mean, what do you know about this proposal? Just what I read in the paper, and thank you for sharing it with me this morning. Uh, what, what I do know is that there's lots of good people like the two you mentioned uh, who have huge knowledge and huge experience and anything that they propose should have to be considered seriously. I don't know enough about it. I think they're meeting the minister today. We'd be very happy to have them before our committee. There's no issue at all. Like we're all rowing this boat in the one way, which is to get the money to the young people to get change in the FAI. And obviously they have a detailed plan and I, I wish them all the best with them. We'd be happy uh, you know, to, to listen to them and support them if we can. I mean, everybody wants the same thing, but everybody has wanted this for a long time. And, we, you know, we just have to get it right. Um, the Labour Party, as far as I know, uh, people like Senator Aidan O'Riordan and party leader Brendan Howland, they're basically saying that the government should uh, increase the uh, provision of funding from 2.9 million euro to 10 million euro to distribute to grassroots soccer just to get, if you like, the institution of soccer in this country just over this little bump in the road. I mean, is 10 million, um, if you like, a doable amount of money that I, I, the, the government could the, give? I, I don't know the answer to that, but at the moment it's 2.9 million. I don't have a problem increasing funding to support. There is other funding given by the government to soccer clubs, and I don't know if that's in there, 10 million or not. 4.5 million was given uh, by, the, by the government to what they call capital projects for for huge soccer right around the country this year already so um, but like I'll be very happy to discuss it with them and I you know we want to move forward together and common sense a common ground uh, more money for you why not you know um, the fact that this has become now an international story a lot of international media have focused <coughs> in on this I mean how embarrassing is it for the country 
Well, it's not. A, it's embarrassing for the FAI. I mean, the, the facts are that soccer internationally has been has been hit with reputational damage from a number of key international players. Some of the leading lights. Uh, I think one of them is being sued for one point five million. Did I read yesterday to be returned to FIFA? Uh, that's not an Irish person, though. It's somebody, sure, sure. Uh, Sepp Ladder, I think is his name. Uh, so like, there, there's huge controversy, uh, uh, and there's an awful lot of money involved. There's huge. You know, look, we've seen it in in the Olympic sports as well. Uh, But at the other end of it, you have the ordinary 5-8s, you have the parents, you have the children, you have, you know, all the people that that give voluntarily to all of these clubs. So you have a huge split uh, between the participants who play and the people who manage the professional game. You know, so like it's, it's a reality. So it's a question of how do you make sure that your board uh, it functions? How do you make sure that your board asks the CEO, hey, listen, you know, what is your new contract, you know? And, and this, the issue seems to be that there was a contract for a million bucks signed and the board were told, well, you can come in to, into a particular office to have a look at it if you want to. Uh, but it wasn't put on. It wasn't put on the agenda for them all to see. So there's all sorts of things that have gone on in the past. Okay, I know. Sure I know we had you in here on Monday, and uh, the world has moved on a bit since then. And the question came up about the plight of Drogheda United in that United yes, yeah. Park <coughs> is owned by the FAI, yeah. and if if it's a case of the FAI has to sell its assets, as I understand, actually the FAI is holding the ground in trust. Uh, so I'm not fully sure of the the legal dimensions of this, but if a scenario um, was to present itself whereby United Park had to be sold, have you learned anything since Monday I, I, about this? I haven't this? because obviously it's a matter for the, the FAI if they do have it in trust and, and for whom and who are, you know, I, I don't know enough about it, but I do know that obviously it's hugely important that, that, that the FAI, if it does go into liquidation, if it does, it means that all their assets are, are sold off and they're dispersed to the people to whom money is owing. So the question then is it better to have an examinership or I, I'm not, I, I'm only just speculating, I don't sure. know the facts, but uh, an examinership means that it'll continue as a going concern while somebody looks and the business plan is put together. I think there's about 90 days where where, where everybody involved in that company uh, can come up with, you know, cost-cutting proposals, new ways of raising funding and all of that. Sure. So I, I, I would hate to see it going into liquidation and everything gone. And there's 200 people employed there and they would all lose their jobs as well. So I, I understand from reading The Independent this morning that there are people within the FEI who are proposing this proposal and that's why I think it must be considered very seriously because they know the business better than anybody else that's the ordinary workers in there mm. uh, so I, I'd be very happy to meet them. Okay, you're planning to call in the FAI top brass next week but have you any plans to call in the people who run Sport Ireland? This is a, a, a government agency they're, which effectively they're coming, in, yeah, they're coming in Wednesday can as well. Yeah sure, yeah, so yeah, I, where I was going with this was, I mean what questions will you be asking them because it seems that Sport Ireland was set up to just, if you like, write the checks and say, for those of you in the Judo Association, there's your few quid, and for those of you in the Ten Pin Bowling Association, yeah. there's your few quid, off you go and do your thing. But the question surely must be raised now that if Sport Ireland is issuing taxpayers' money to various sporting institutions, that there has to be some sort of oversight on how the money is spent. I mean, is that something you'll be exploring? Very much so. I think that, as I understand it, that Auditor's accounts were presented every year from the FAI 
to uh, Sport Ireland and based on those audits the, the money was sent so the question is what due diligence further needs to be done by Sport Ireland to all sports organisations even if they have audited accounts because audited accounts are you know the, the auditor comes in as I understand it and you give the auditor, you give me the information and I say yeah that sounds right uh, whereas what was discovered in the FAI was through a forensic audit when they went through every cheque and every receipt and every cash book so the question is do they need to do more uh, you know do they need to employ specialist uh, auditors who will go in and do a spot check on particular areas I, like I'm not a, a professional in this but I did write last night to the to the regulator the auditors who regulate all auditors and I gave them the faxes published in relation to the FAI and asked them do they have a view on this or what do we need to change are there new processes are there new programs that we should be running you know when when in, particularly in sports organizations uh, to try and find out are there issues there that we don't know about and that don't normally come up yeah, the FAI has, if you like, a shareholding in the Aviva Stadium, yes, um, yeah. or as it's sometimes referred to by UEFA as the Dublin Arena, right. and there's been questions as to whether or not the FAI should sell its stake, and of yeah. course a, a certain chunk of the funding for the Aviva Stadium came from taxpayers' money as well. Yeah. Is a sale of the FAI stake um, a reality in the current situation? Well obviously they're negotiating their debt with their banks, they have debts in excess of 55 million so if they sell that asset right, to get an income from that to pay off their debts but the problem is they then have to rent the stadium and they have to pay <laughs> for the use of the stadium so it, 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 it will affect their future cost outgoings and look it's a very complex area and that's why I think we need all the professionals to get together and I welcome the people this morning uh, Brian Kerr and Niall Quinn are highly highly thought of and there are lots of other people out there who have got good ideas so maybe maybe, maybe this is a very good start and a very good proposal and let's see can we add to it really yeah. can, can, can the government and, and your committee can you apply any influence on UEFA or even FIFA for example to basically persuade <coughs> them to pay off the FAI debts that keeps the FAI afloat and over a period of time the FAI could pay back UEFA problem solved and we all live happily ever after is that a, a runner? Well I, I spoke to an accountant last night who, who is an auditor and he was telling me that, that if, if a company goes into uh, you know, into liquidation it's gone but if, if an inspector is appointed uh, they could come up with a business plan like that and that might certainly be acceptable to FIFA or, or, or to UEFA uh, and that they would agree but obviously it's a matter for them and the plan would have to be put to them but they it might be a way of keeping everything going and certainly if that's an option it, it we have to consider everything um, that's that's really the end game like for soccer if we don't if we can't keep our national team going it's going to be very serious OK, it's a story we're going to watch with uh, eyes and ears over the next uh, couple of weeks to see how things evolve. Uh, Fergus Adad, Chairman of the Oireachtas Committee on Transport, Tourism and Sport at Fine TD for Loud East Mead. Thanks for joining us in studio. Ken Murray on LMFM. Now, if you do want to get in touch, our text number is 086-1800-658. 086-1800-658. Now... Two cases have come before the local courts in recent days which have exposed worrying gaps in our mental health services. I'm joined now by LMFM's courts reporter, Ruth O'Connell, who has the details. Uh, Ruth, in the first case, 
involving a 31-year-old man. The judge suggested to his defence team that they apply to the High Court to have their client made uh, a ward of court. Why exactly was this? Well, Judge Aaron McKiernan had heard about this, uh, had her, um, heard this um, gentleman's case last week, and she'd adjourned it into. Um, Tuesday of this week uh, for a special hearing, basically, because she was so concerned about the his need for for a, a sort of a high security um, and intensive. Uh, it's it's kind of intensive care treatment for mental uh, health uh, patients. And there's a place called Phoenix Care and it's just a step below the Central Mental Hospital in Dundrum in terms of uh, the security, the level of security that's there. And this is where the defence for this uh, defendant um, say that he should be being treated. Now, under the current legislation, the um, there you have to have this whole meet a certain criteria under the Mental Health Act and he does meet this criteria but the Phoenix Care Centre say that he has to be treated in a local psychiatric unit before he and assessed and referred to them before they can take him. But the defence team say that there's no in law, there's no reason why he can't go there directly. The other day we were hearing about this this man's case. He he is up before the courts in terms of twenty three different charges. Um, he has more violent tendencies than an, another individual who was also heard later in the day, and he is basically in need of the this secure unit. At at the moment, he is refusing to take medication. He's in custody because there's nowhere else to put him. Um, and if he were granted bail. The concern is there as as to whether the public is at risk. He's not he's not eating and he's not drinking uh, regularly. He he's going through periods where he's fasting and refusing to eat, and his his mental health uh, is deteriorating further. And actually, as somebody who has seen him in court over the years, he's lost an awful lot of weight. So he's even if you um, were just to go and visually uh, visually speaking, you could tell he he's not well at all. It must be very frustrating for the judge, if you like, to try and get the best for this man. Um, I, I, she certainly expressed her frustration in, in, and said that it needed to be highlighted at the highest level. And that's why she suggested they make an application to the High Court uh, to make him a ward of court. Um, you're probably aware there's another high profile case um, that was highlighted recently about a prisoner, um, a homeless man who's uh, he'd a, a condition to do with his toenails, if you remember that in the last week or so, um, that uh, he was also um, made a ward of court. So I think this is they're more or less saying the High Court uh, needs to intervene at, at this stage. Well, now, I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, there was actually a second case in the Dundalk uh, District Court on the exact same day, and it was very similar in nature. I mean, would, would this be unusual or was it just a remarkable coincidence? It's it's not a remarkable coincidence in as much as they were both um, on the court list last week. And again, there was a special sitting in Dundalk on, um, for this, uh, this. The civil list was on Tuesday and these two were added into into the list um, so that Judge McKiernan could examine both cases in, in more detail and try and find a solution. Um, and again, a similar situation applied. Now, this prisoner, um, he's not considered to be as uh, violent or aggressive as uh, the first person I was talking about, but his... his um, he has uh, when he has an episode, he becomes very verbally aggressive and, and that's... And in fact, both of them were in court, and you, they they had they were both talking, and 
to themselves basically or there were outbursts um, from both of them um, and and really off the wall claims from one of them were was were being made uh, you you could walk in off the street and you'd realize that the sure. man needed needed help help um, and his case was highlighted recently at uh, the Joint Policing Committee for the Dundalk Municipal District area. His mum actually went and spoke publicly about her, um, her experience and her concerns about uh, the lack of a treatment plan for him. Now, he is uh, he is considered suitable to be treated in the Department of Psychiatry, uh, the Drogheda Department of Psychiatry at Cross Lanes, whereas the first got, uh, chap I, I was speaking about, he, he's, he's not, um, he needs a, a higher level of security because he could abscond uh, if he was granted bail. And uh, this second person has a history of absconding because they're being treated on it uh, if they don't meet the criteria on the day that they present for assessment which is the case uh, for the second person the um he won't be admitted so he's he's not he's not getting the treatment but if if he's admitted on a voluntary basis he can still he can still leave now i believe in the uh, in the case of the second man that the uh, the court heard a concern about the man's mother i mean tell us the background well, like I, well, like I said, she she was um, so concerned about um, that case that she 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 basically spoke publicly about his case and on what the, it means for her. And um, like uh, she actually said that it, he's ended up living in her shed for four months. I mean, that's the situation there. And I should say, in, in in relation to the first case, he was committed under the Mental Health Act before. Judge the late Judge William Hamill had dealt with him as well, and had tried to find a solution. So we're talking over a four year period that there there's no solution uh, being found. The, there may have been periods where uh, the, this accused was in a better condition mentally speaking but on this date that he was brought to the central mental hospital um, he was left at the gates Ken and because there were no beds available so he was literally abandoned even though he'd been committed under the Mental Health Act he was left in Dublin to his own devices um, and there was no support system in place for him. Okay, well, Ruth, we'll we'll leave it there and uh, we'll we'll watch this space as the saying goes. Okay, we're going to move on. As I said, if you do want to get in touch, our text number is 086-1800-658. Now, the news this week that a Sinn Féin bill to freeze rent for three years has got the backing of Fianna Fáil has sparked a, a very critical response from the Irish Property Owners Association. It says such a development will devastate the market. To hear why and how, I'm joined on the line now by Margaret McCormick of the Irish Property Owners Association. So, Margaret, you're saying the market will be devastated if a three-year rent freeze is implemented. In what way? The situation with the market is supply is key. So we need to increase supply in the market. We don't need to do anything. I mean, the biggest thing is the supply needs to be increased. So if we're going to freeze all rents, one, the, we have a situation where, where they've already frozen rents for a great number of people at substantially below market rate. And we, we surveyed our members recently and we, we found that 71% were letting below market rate with 25% of them substantially less than market rate. They were actually at the 33% below, um, below the market rate at that stage. And so we already have a, we have a two-tier system. We have a system that has... Um, new people coming into the market can, can um, new investors can, can have market rate, whereas uh, the existing investors, the people that they need to keep who kept their rents low, cannot um, get a fair return or a sustainable return on their investment. So, I mean, when you 
the items and, and the costs in a rent freeze, um, they'll freeze the rent, which means they'll freeze the income. But other items on the other side, so so um, a, a property owner would have to deal with maintenance items like service charge, insurance, plumbing services, registration, accountancy, uh, mortgage interest, um, all of those costs, replacement, furniture and fittings, all of those will still increase in cost. But the the out, the income will freeze. So that makes it uh, and, and will make it even more unsustainable for people that are already in the market. I mean, sadly, when we when we checked um, with our members there um, recently, we found that nine percent of them intend to leave the market within the year. That's nine percent. Now, th- that is an awful lot of people to move out of the market. And 44 percent were aiming to leave within the next five years. So well, well, that's and that's what that's with what what everybody is telling you is is the market as it is today. So if that's the level of people leaving, and and two thirds of accommodation is is provided by people w- with under three properties, so sure. two thirds of all accommodation, and they're the people they need to be looking at and trying to in- encourage to stay in the market, not leave the market. I know, but uh, I mean, nobody would, I suppose, uh, argue against the fact that landlords have costs, and of course. Uh, the introduction some years back of tax on income from uh, rental properties actually discouraging a lot of landlords from uh, staying in the business. But the bottom line here, Margaret, is that uh, young people are paying rents that are actually greater than the average mortgage. And it's actually aimed at them. I mean, nobody cares about the landlord who's bringing the price down. It's the poor, unfortunate renter who's being absolutely fleeced in an environment where now they have to, I think, save, is it 10, even 20% of a house cost even just to get a mortgage? Isn't the, the situation that this issue is actually about the ridiculous costs that landlords are charging and many people feel it's gone out of control? Um, well, well I, what I would say on that is that, that the, the provision of accommodation should be dealt with by the state and it's supply that's needed for people in the private rental market and uh, for people who want to buy. Uh, and the supply isn't adequate because it's not economically viable to, to build certain types of properties. And they're the properties that are in demand, uh, like apartments um, in, in cities and in large towns. Uh, so that's one side. So so the cost of, of actually building is too high. Uh, then the next is, is you've got the uh, people that would be have an ability to pay for it. But obviously there's a restriction Again, the, the central banks have a restriction on how much they can borrow. So, in, in that situation, it, it, it's so, so they're, they're two separate situations from um, basically from the private rental market. The private rental market is is providing accommodation. Now, landlords have always been taxed, and and they, nobody likes being taxed, but but they accept a fair level of taxation. But they're not treated the same way as any other business. So, any other business can can offset their costs before they have they computate their profit. But in the private rental sector, what happens, um, and, and they, they increased the costs by about 20% during the downturn when rents had, had reduced. So, I mean, part of this is, is, is 
is continually treating one sector sure, badly. But, but, I have, but, I have, but I have to put it to you, isn't it time the Irish Property Owners Association lobbied the government for, if you like, um, a, a structured scenario whereby the accidental landlord, the he or the she who bought a house with a view to having the mortgage paid off by a renter so that in years to come it would become effectively a pension, that he or she is being fleeced by taxation and he or she may only own one house but somebody who owns 20 houses pays the same rate of taxation. Would you not be better off lobbying the government to address the taxation system so there's actually an incentive to buy a property and then rent it out in such a way that the rent covers the mortgage? Absolutely. We we, we continually lobby the government about um, treating it as a business and giving fair tax treatment. Now, there should be fair tax treatment to everybody. So, so um, and, and, you know, I, I look at somebody, if somebody made a deliberate decision and 84% of our members did to buy a property as a pension, then it's a deliberate decision. I, I wouldn't even consider them sort of in the accidental category. Um, so I would look at them as, as, as people who, who made a decision that they would go into the market. But the problem in the market is, is still the way the tax treatment is dealt with. I mean, if it was treated as a business and 50% of, of the income, over 50% of the income goes back to the state. Sure. Well, just one final... Um, And and that's before you pay your your capital of your mortgage. Sure. Now, as I said, I I don't think anyone would argue that, you know, landlords have hidden costs that most people don't see. But can I just put one final question to you? Would you accept that certain landlords, I don't know what the numbers are, the greed that they apply in fleecing young people who are on basic wages, the greed that they apply in fleecing youngsters is getting all of you a bad reputation? What I would say is that that um, most landlords um, charge a fair rent for their their property. Um, well, fourteen hundred a month is not a fair restricted. rent. Well, you're look. Well, to be honest, I, I'm I'm not even going to go into for what or where because that 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 there's there's different situations out there. But if we're if we're looking at there's no doubt that it is 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 very hard for anybody to come back back with. With, um, very, very briefly, Margaret, because I have difficult. to wrap it up. Yeah. But if we don't, I mean, the cost of the provision of accommodation is high. Uh, we have new people coming in. There's a two-tier system now. New people coming into the market can uh, charge market rate, whereas people, existing people in the market have been frozen So, uh, with the 4% with the rent control. And now they're looking at, at freezing everything. Now, I, there's no there's no fairness in this. There's a constitutional issue well, about it anyway. I, I, I would argue, and I'm going to have to wrap it up there, Margaret, that uh, people who are being fleeced and spending their entire disposable income on what is called dead money, rent, they would claim it's not fair either. Uh, unfortunately, I'm going to have to leave it there, Margaret, because the clock has gotten the, the, the better of us, but it's something we will return to uh, in due course. So, uh, Margaret McCormick of the Irish Property Owners Association, thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us. Ken Murray on LMFM. If you do want to get in touch our text number is 086 you have been in touch you've been on the phones you've been on the text machines Marie what are the public of the North East saying Good morning Ken and good morning to everybody listening in John was in touch in relation to what's going on in the Football Association of Ireland and he says at this time is the association really fit for purpose anymore and he says that he's disgusted by what is going on and that it seems to just be never ending, that there's nobody that appears to be answerable. On the same topic, Jimmy was in touch and Jimmy says he is just aghast that the FAI didn't see 
uh, that they should attend that meeting of the Oireachtas Sports Committee and says that people uh, have a lot of questions that still need to be mm. answered. Well, it looks as if they'll be attending next week. That's right. Yeah. We'll, we'll see, though. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. We'll see how it goes. Uh, Mary phoned in and Mary says that she, uh, her children are all grown up now, um, Ken, but that as uh, young children, uh, two of her boys were big into the soccer and they used the local soccer club. And she said, and she didn't say what area she was from, just County Mead, but she said that they used the local soccer club and that they got great service from the club over the years. They were never going to be great footballers by any means, she said, but that they got great service from the club. It was a great outlet for the kids in the area and lots of friendships were made and that a lot of the work on the ground in these soccer clubs around the country go unnoticed a lot of the well, time. Well, that, that applies practically to all sports groups, whether yes. it's GA, soccer, rugby. Yeah, That's true. And that when you hear now about the money that's been wasted at the top of the game, as she puts it. It really does make you feel sorry for people that are on the ground doing the job day in, day out. And I um, suppose that is reflective of a lot of comments that we've been getting in during the week and sure, yeah. over the last couple of weeks uh, from people. Yeah, the volunteers are putting in the slog and the people at the top, it seems, have been allegedly abusing their positions. Uh, Tom, on the same topic, Tom says that he feels it's time now for uh, the, the association to be completely disbanded and a new body formed because he feels that trust has been lost and confidence has been lost in the association and he just wonders if they'll actually be able to restore that confidence again. You know, is, is it possible sure, to sure. come back from this? Moving from the FAI then and just to the situation regarding mental health, uh, Ken and the mental health services. Uh, Peggy was in touch and Peggy was listening to the interview with our court reporter, Ruth O'Connell, and she just wanted to say that uh, it's well known in this country that so many people are being let down by the mental health service. And she says that while we talk every day about the need to speak about your problems and to speak about uh, being under pressure and being under mental health pressure, that the services just aren't there. OK, Marie, we leave it there. Ken Murray on LMFM. Now, the proposed extended bus errand route from Drogheda to Cloughhead and on to Dundalk has been delayed. The service was expected to commence last August, but so far nothing has materialised. Michelle Hall from Terman Fekin is a councillor on Louth County Council. She has written to the Minister for Transport, Shane Ross, seeking answers and joins me in studio now. So, Michelle, you've been lobbying for this service. What were you told at the outset by Bus Erin? So we originally got the NTA, the National Transport Authority, approved it in March and it was going to be starting uh, late quarter uh, three, which is the end of August, and there was no sign of it. I wrote to the NTA and they said that had been delayed until... um, November. Um, I had actually been talking to somebody, a source in Bus Erin, and they said that they actually had no communication from the National Transport Authority to Bus Erin that the route was even going ahead. Uh, they only found it out from myself, actually. So there was a lack of communication there. Uh, so November came and no sign of it. Again, emailing the National Transport Authority and Bus Erin several times, uh, ringing the offices in the regional offices in Dundalk. No answer to any of my calls. So unfortunately, I had to escalate it up to Minister Shane Ross and I emailed him through the public rep forum and I got an answer that afternoon and I've been told now that's been delayed again until um, the 
first quarter of 2020, which could mean the end of March. And this is a six month, potentially a six month delay, third delay for this service. Any reason given? No reason given, and I did request a reason twice, um, so no reason was given there either. Uh, so it's very frustrating. Uh, we had a lot of people who were expecting it to start at uh, the end of August and thinking that they could actually use the service to get to college in DKIT, actually, because now it's been extended to Dundalk or to get to college in, uh, in Dublin. People um, use the service to access jobs, employment and uh, shopping medical services we only have four unbelievably from Clarehead to Drogheda we only have four buses a day going into Drogheda and uh, would you happen to know how many people would benefit from this service I mean in terms of numbers uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but I've uh, seen there's a girl, um, a local girl who's constantly reporting uh, to Bus Erin from Twitter um, where the bus is packed. There's people standing on the bus constantly. It's very dangerous. A lot of, no seatbelts on the bus either. So um, not only the people that are, con- are using it now, but the people that are potential users. A lot of people won't use this service because you get stranded. You could be in Drogheda for four hours when you need to get back after two hours. So I've heard um, that a lot of people would use it a lot more and actually would help for employment in the area um, so that people can actually access jobs. And when you approached uh, Bus Aaron at the outset, did they see any problems or issues with, uh, if you like, extending the service? No. Um, in fact, when I, I did talk to somebody in Bosserin and they were uh, delighted that it was going to start the more jobs up in Dundalk as well, because um, you're now going to have more bus drivers. So, again, there was very little communication really about it. Um, the National Transport Authority approved it and then they handed on to Bosserin and it's up to Bosserin then to implement the timetable. So effectively, National Transport Authority um you know, wash their hands of it and leave it up to Bus Aaron, but there's been no communication really from their part. And do we know if there's a cost implication for Bus Aaron? Uh, well, I assume they'll have to put on um, extra bus drivers. The service is effectively being doubled. So uh, there now will be eight services in each direction. Um, we had no, we no, at the moment, we have no bus service on a Sunday or public holidays. So that will be increased to now four services. Um, so I assume the cost there will be um, more more bus drivers yeah so you think it's possible that it's actually a cost issue rather than a a pragmatic issue it could be um a recruitment issue um i don't know again no reason has been given and uh, i suppose the logical question is uh have you spoken to uh, the local tds and the local senator to push the case on your behalf yes senator jed nash has been um very proactive and in fact he helped me get this campaign up off the ground um, and get it approved because it was pre-election. Um, so it was actually approved um, before I got elected as councillor. So again, I haven't really spoken to our uh, TDs. Um, I know that um, one of the, our local TDs, actually both local TDs have been told by local people, um, we're trying to get this service up and running and they couldn't get it. And I actually have um, emails from the National Transport Authority to our local TD saying that no improvements will be made in this area. But I um, started a huge campaign and I wrote a three page letter full of research why we needed this. And I got signatures from most of the people in Clarehead and Termafekin to support this as well. So um, I wouldn't have had a lot of faith in the TDs. So I've um, keep going myself at this. Um, but I'm as I say, I went to Shane Ross. I hand-delivered a letter to Dahl Erin the other day and I'm hoping that this will actually escalate it and give it more impotence. 
the lack of the service or the failure to implement the promised service, what sort of inconvenience is this causing for people? Uh, it'll actually break your heart. Um, when I was going around collecting signatures, there had been people that uh, had to turn down jobs because uh, especially young people where maybe the parent could drive, but they weren't able to drive, but the parents were already working and they actually couldn't get into town to get a job. Um, again, people accessing um, health services and also um, you forget that people come from Drogheda out to Termafekin as well. So we've had the nursing home out in Termafekin where some of the care staff there haven't been able to get out and they're having to pay for taxis. So they've got a huge cost implication because again the service doesn't run on a Saturday or a Sunday and very few, only three on a, on a Saturday as well. So it kind of affects a lot of people um, even my own family here we have, I have teenagers and my daughter was working in Drogheda but the service when he started at 10 o'clock and so she had to be in work at 9 o'clock so we were constantly on the road with her so again we're putting cars out on the road where it doesn't need to go. So finally Michelle uh, what's the next step I mean are you just going to keep at Shane Ross's department or are you going to ask uh, the likes of Senator Jed Nash who's uh, in your own party the Labour Party yeah. to, to, to push the point? Yeah no and Jed has um, helped me push this point as well and uh, we will keep at this Um as I say, it's kind of you can't let things lie. Um, and now I know that those who shout the loudest will actually get something done. So uh, I will I will definitely be keeping up this campaign. OK, Labour Senator Michelle Hall from Terman Fekin. Uh, best of luck in trying to get that extended bus service from Drogheda to Dundalk via Clara Head uh, implemented. It's already something like four months behind schedule. So hopefully we can get that up and running uh, as soon as possible. Ken Murray on LMFM. Just remind you once again about that text number. It's 0861800658. And when Councillor Michelle Hall left, she just asked me to remind you that if you live out in the Term and Feckin area, there's a, a one mile run or walk on St. Stephen's Day at St. Feckin's GFC starting at 11am. And the proceeds are in aid of gold. So if you overeat on Christmas Day and you want to work off those calories it's the one mile run or walk on St. Stephen's Day at St. Feckin's GFC pitch there and it gets underway at 11am. Now if you've been following the news you will know that the US House of Representatives or the US Parliament has moved a step closer to impeaching US President Donald Trump. Only two US presidents have actually been impeached while in office, namely Andrew Johnson in 1868 and Bill Clinton in 1998. However, neither were actually removed from office. The charges against Donald Trump are that he exercised his powers as president to obtain an improper personal benefit while working against the U.S. national interest and that he has obstructed Congress in its pursuit of these allegations. He claims it's a hoax, while the Democrats feel it's a chance to weaken his re-election campaign. Larry Donnelly from Boston, Massachusetts, is a law lecturer in UCG and joins me now. Good morning, Larry. Good morning, Ken. Thanks for taking the call. Larry, um, are we at a point where it's a case of when rather than if Donald Trump will be impeached? Yes, I mean, I suspect he will be impeached. The Judiciary Committee, where this uh, process is formalized, is going to be voting probably today. Uh, and the de- Judiciary Committee is controlled by Democrats. I suspect that they will vote uh, to forward the impeachment resolutions onto the full uh, House of Representatives. The House of Representatives is likely to vote Uh, at some stage in the middle of next week. Uh, And again, because Democrats enjoy uh, a fairly solid advantage there, uh, I expect him to be impeached, most likely on both counts that have been put forward. Uh, And because a simple majority vote is required, 
Um, but this doesn't change the fundamental reality, which I think is that when this goes to the Senate, uh, and listeners should know that it takes two-thirds of the United States Senate to remove him from office, uh, that this is going nowhere, that it's effectively dead on arrival uh, unless something dramatic comes out. So basically, all this talk of impeachment means it's not going to happen because the Republicans have the majority in the upper house, the Senate, and if they vote against the impeachment, that's the end of the matter, or is it? It is. I mean, that the, 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 the reality is impeachment is something quite different from conviction. Uh, impeachment on the old common law model is, a, is a, akin to an indictment. So Congress is, is at the House, I should say, is effectively finding an indictment against the president. That then has to be decided by the U.S. Senate, where in a much more formal, uh, more legalistic proceeding, which will be presided over by uh, the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, uh, and in which both sides will have legal representation to make their case and will call witnesses, etc., cetera, uh, that will be the, the, a decision for the U.S. Senate. And as stated, uh, two-thirds of the Senate would be to vote to remove him. Uh, with the Republicans controlling the Senate, that means the Democrats would have to flip 20 Republican senators. That is, 20 Republican senators would have to vote to remove uh, the president from office. Uh, the chances of that at this vantage point are very, very, very slim. They're next to nothing. So, um, you know, the, the full outcome of this, I suppose, at the end of the day, next year obviously is an election year. Uh, the full outcome of this, wait, we wait and see. But I think listeners should remember that the last time this was done, 1998, by the Republicans against Bill Clinton, uh, the, the election results actually rebounded against uh, the Republicans, the impeaching party. And I think some Americans might wonder, given that this is not going to happen in the Senate, uh, some Americans might wonder why the Democrats went about this long process when it was just an exercise in futility. Well, the, you, you bet me to that question, because that's the point I was going to ask you. On the basis that the Democrats know what the numbers are in the Senate, uh, one might say, what's the point? But is it safe to assume what they're trying to do here is inflict PR damage on Donald Trump? Yeah, I mean, there's two angles they've taken. I think one is that the what, what you just said. I think that behind the scenes they're saying that this might inflict damage and might uh, hurt his standing with that very small percentage of Americans who will decide this election, uh, who don't have particularly strong feelings about Donald Trump one way or another. They might have voted for him last time because they wanted to give the system a kick. They might have voted, voted for Hillary Clinton. They might not have voted at all. Uh, that's the group who ultimately they might decide, and they think this could hurt him. The other thing that they're saying publicly is that this was necessary, that even though uh, the Senate will decide whatever it wants to decide, uh, that, that the House had to do this because uh, it couldn't allow the precedent of a United States president acting that this way. That is, uh, using taxpayer money, that is, the, the, the foreign aid that was meant to go to the Ukraine, using taxpayer money uh, to effectively further uh, his own political prospects because he, he insisted the release of that money was dependent upon uh, an announcement by the Ukraine that they were going to investigate uh, former Vice President Joe Biden and current presidential candidate Joe Biden, uh, that this conduct, they couldn't stand idly by and watch this. They had to act. Um, there's been a lot of, if you like, mud thrown at Donald Trump since he took office. Uh, there's the uh, the Russian dimension to the whole thing. I mean, uh, do you th- suspect that as the presidential campaign moves up a few gears in 2020, that this will be the type of stuff he's going to have to defend over and over as the countdown to the presidential election next November takes place? Yeah, I mean, I, I suspect that, you know, his conduct in uh, while in office, and I suppose some of his conduct before he was in office, will be central to 
uh, the Democrat, whoever the Democratic nominee is, will be central to the campaign. Uh, I think the case will be that, you know, we, you know, look, look at all we believe in as Americans. Look at all the principles and look at how we used to revere the office of president of the United States. This man has cheapened and demeaned it uh, at every turn. I do think that that's going to be part uh, of the message. And I, I think that that is an efficacious message, message on the one hand. But on the other, uh, the reality is there are an awful lot of Americans who like Donald Trump because he tore up the rule book, because he said he wasn't going to play uh, the establishment game, that he was going to do politics quite differently. And in particular, when it comes, for instance, to American foreign policy, uh, one point that I think needs to be made over and over again is uh, a lot of people uh, on the European left and on the global left uh, all of a sudden are deciding that people like George W. Bush and John McCain uh, were these great Americans and that they might have, might have disagreed with them on certain things, uh, but they were far superior to Donald Trump. Uh, I think what Donald Trump would say to that is, look at what their foreign policy uh, endeavors and adventures brought us. They discredited the United States and the world. They caused undue chaos around the world. They caused loads of deaths in the United States and around the world. Uh, he, on the other hand, hasn't gotten the country entangled uh, in foreign wars. So while you might not like his style, the results are much better. And I think that's the case he's going to continue to make. Well, uh, Bill Clinton, I think, once said it's all about the economy, stupid, when he was asked about his popularity. I do believe that unemployment in the USA at the moment, I think it's around, is it 3.9%? I presume, ultimately, that when people go to the polls in November of next year, uh, he can sell the message that America is booming and therefore he will ask people to put him back in the White House on that basis. Is that the case? Yeah, I think that that will be central to his I think that's going to be really a key factor that's beyond the control of Donald Trump and beyond the control of the Democrats, is will the economic numbers keep going in the right direction? Uh, if they don't, then some of his support could erode. If they do continue to go in a solid direction, then Donald Trump looks in pretty good shape for re-election. And one of the factors that needs to be made, one of the points that needs to be made in that regard, uh, when it comes to the minority vote in the United States, uh, African-American unemployment is actually at an historic low. Uh, and Donald Trump has been has been making some inroads uh, in the African-American community. He's never going to command anywhere near majority support. But if he can effectively both suppress African-American turnout and get a decent uh, percentage, uh, you know, historically speaking, of the African-American vote, that could be dispositive. The other thing is what's fascinating is that Latino Americans – Despite all the things that Donald Trump has said with respect to build a wall and keep immigrants out, et cetera, he continues to enjoy about one third uh, one third of the support uh, of Latino voters. Uh, those numbers in close states, those numbers could be absolutely crucial. Uh, and it's fascinating to me the way that they continue to, to rally to his cause, despite all that he's said. Um, Joe Biden is a man who has roots in County Louth, and a lot of people would be curious to know how he is shaping up. He's actually, if I'm correct in saying, he's actually not in the Congress or the Senate at present, so he's, if you like, an outsider who's trying to get back in. Um, How is it looking for him at this stage? This is the great unknown. I mean, if you're trying to diagnose what's going on in the Democratic presidential primary, uh, good luck to you, because there are so many variables at play. I'll put it to you this way. Joe Biden is well ahead in all of the national polling. He's more than 10 points ahead uh, of his nearest rival. However, at the same time, uh, he's flagging in the early states, the crucial early states uh, of Iowa and New Hampshire. So the question becomes, uh, how long is that going to, how long can he stand up? And if he does finish, say, for instance, third or fourth in both of those states, uh, can his campaign withstand that? 
Um, whoever comes out of Iowa and New Hampshire is going to have a certain amount of momentum. Uh, what Joe Biden will be backing, banking on uh, is that in the latest states where he remains very strong, with African-American voters who, with whom he remains very strong, that he can keep up that support. Uh, and I think one of the other remarkable things about Biden has been his debate performances uh, have been, by and large, dreadful. Uh, and I think they've opened him up to criticism uh, on the age front, that he's yesterday's man, that he's just not up to the task. Uh, yet his numbers continue to stay strong. So it's a really, really tough one to call in terms of where he stands uh, at present. A lot of people do think he's going to fade, uh, but I think his resilience is remarkable. Um, I think, what, we're about 11 months or so away from the presidential election. They tell us that something like 36 to 40 million Americans are of Irish heritage. Does the Irish vote um, hold any weight anymore? Do people vote as an Irish bloc or do they just simply vote for the candidate they like, uh, regardless of whether he or she uh, has any interest in Irish affairs? They, they don't vote as a bloc, but at the same time, they're still an important constituency. Irish-American opinion had traditionally aligned with the Democratic Party. Uh, it doesn't anymore. Irish-Americans are just as likely to vote Republican as they are Democrat. However, as part of the overall Catholic vote, as a crucial component of the overall Catholic vote, uh, Irish-Americans are still important. And when it comes to places like Ohio and Pennsylvania, uh, the interesting thing is it mightn't be issues like uh, Irish issues, for instance, that really animate Irish-Americans, although I think they are deeply committed uh, to peace in Northern Ireland, it might not necessarily be those issues. What it's more likely to be, and what Donald Trump is likely to make hay of, is cultural issues like abortion, on which Irish Americans remain fairly conservative. Even those who, who, who remain Democrats, they tend to be more conservative on those issues. So as part of the overall Catholic vote in the United States, uh, Irish, America, Irish America remains uh, an important demographic. And that's why I think, for instance, every year, uh, you see the un- unparalleled access that Irish people enjoy uh, on March 17th uh, throughout the United States. Uh, I think Irish America is still a key block, but it's just not as homogenous as it once was. Well, I think was it last week uh, the Congress passed a motion whereby it gives its full support to the Good Friday Agreement or the British-Irish Peace Agreement of 1998, but there seemed to be a proviso uh, in it that uh, the U.S., uh, wouldn't do, if you like, a trade deal unless all the provisions of the peace agreement uh, were, if you like, uh, upheld and acted upon. Do you sense that perhaps the, the Irish-American bloc within the Congress um, have sent a message to Boris Johnson basically uh, not to, if you like, mess with the peace process in any way that makes nationalists or Catholics in the North worse off? Yeah, I think they've sent a very powerful message. And I think that the way that uh, Irish-American Congress people have rallied around the Good Friday Agreement in the context of Brexit is testimony to the enduring power of Irish-America as a political entity. And also, I think it needs to be said, uh, it's testimony to the efficacy of uh, Irish diplomats. And, and uh, we, we give Irish politicians who've reached out across the Atlantic a lot of credit uh, and they deserve, and deservedly so. But there's been scores of Irish diplomats over the years who've worked away and worked away quietly uh, on Irish Americans in Congress and in positions of power, uh, who've really, you know, brought to bear that considerable influence. And when you think uh, a small country of six million people, when you think uh, that you can get the leaders of the United States Congress all the way up to Nancy Pelosi to effectively say to the UK, uh, arguably America's oldest and most powerful ally, to say. 
look, you're not getting anything you want in terms of a, a trade deal unless you respect the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, I think that's quite extraordinary by any measure, uh, and I would defy those who are. There are some detractors about Irish America. Uh, I would defy them to say that that's anything but uh, an example of Irish America's still extraordinary influence in the United States. Or to put it another way, a message to the Tories, don't mess with the Irish. Yeah, I think that, that, I think that that's very much a part of it as well. Uh, and one of the interesting things, uh, you would think that the Tories would have some sort of kinship uh, with the Republican Party in the United States. Uh, one of the extraordinary things is that that resolution was really bipartisan. Uh, a lot of Irish-American Republicans, this points back to what I mentioned a minute ago about the heterogeneity of, Irish, of Irish-American opinion, but on Northern Ireland and on Brexit and on the Good Friday Agreement, agreement uh, Irish-America is at one. And when Irish-America is at one across the aisle, uh, I think it's extraordinary. And again, as I said, the Republicans aren't afraid to stand up to the Tory party. Uh, finally, Larry, just talk us through, uh, if you like, the timetable from uh, next month onwards, because once January kicks in and the presidential uh, year, everything moves up a gear. You have the various caucuses in Iowa, New Hampshire and so on. Just talk us through the timetable leading up to the presidential election. Yeah, I think the one thing I do need to address very quickly first is that in, in January, uh, we're likely to have an impeachment trial. And one of the really key things to watch here in the context of the presidential campaign is that two United States senators who are doing very well in the polls, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, they're likely going to be tied up in an impeachment trial uh, in Washington, D.C., and hence unable to campaign a great deal uh, in Iowa and New Hampshire. The impact that will have on the dynamics of the race uh, will be fascinating to see. But as you say, uh, Iowa and New Hampshire will vote first, February 3rd and February 11th, respectively. Then they'll go to South Carolina and Nevada. It won't be long then before Super Tuesday when lots of states vote at the same time. That will happen in March. Um, but the reality is the Democratic primary field is so close at this stage. Uh, you know, anything could happen. There are four or five, four people who are in or around with a chance, all of whom have a conceivable chance of winning the nomination. Uh, this thing could take months to ultimately shake out. And the way that the Democratic delegates, that is, you need a certain amount of delegates to win the nomination, they're being awarded proportionally uh, in the Democratic primary cycle. So, for instance, somebody could win a state, but the next closest person to him uh, will get a proportional amount of delegates. So this thing could go on uh, a considerable amount of time. And conceivably, some people are saying uh, all the way up to the convention uh, in summertime. Uh, I anticipate that it will be resolved at some stage before that. But uh, this is the most fascinating and most difficult to call Democratic primary uh, that I've seen in a long, long time. Uh, and again, Donald Trump will look, be sitting back looking at it all unfold, uh, and developing strategies and raising money and doing all those sorts of things. So next year is going to be an absolutely fascinating year in American politics. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Larry Donnelly, thanks very much indeed uh, for your uh, colourful insight into the machinations of current US politics. That's Larry Donnelly, law lecturer with NUI Galway and political columnist with the journal.ie. That text number again, 086-1800-658. We'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. Victims of domestic and sexual abuse are being forced to queue next to their abusers in archaic court conditions. A multi-agency campaign was launched yesterday by a coalition of charities and lawyers calling on the government to allocate funding to develop a new family law court at Smithfield in Dublin. Earlier this morning, I spoke to Nolan Blackwell, CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, and I began by asking her how bad the situation is. Well, we um, uh, just we hear about it on a regular enough basis. We don't have the statistics 
uh, that would show the level of need because nobody is collecting that kind of information. But what we know is we know people who are in abusive relationships who have to go in to the civil family courts in order to deal with issues around access to children, around uh, separation, around maintenance, around barring orders and in the facilities that are available really all around the country, uh, but particularly at the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, we're hearing more about this in Dublin. The facilities are so inadequate that people who are who are abusive of other people are able to stand in the same small space as they are waiting for cases to go on without anywhere for uh, for them to feel safe, without places for children to be normal in. Sometimes you have to have children in these courts. They have to go in, young people, and they are standing around in these crowded, uh, unsafe conditions for them, but also in places which absolutely do not lead to justice for anybody involved. Because that's the thing. These courts are about accessing justice for everybody involved in family law situations. And and the I suppose the point is, Ken, that at, at this stage, there is a, a promise of a fit-for-purpose family law court to serve Dublin and the regions around it. There is um, a, a site. Uh, there's actually bits of machinery and bits of um, uh, prefabs on it. So somebody knows it's there. Uh, the Minister for Justice has said that he has allocated some funding to it. But this group of 11 organisations has come together to say, can we be assured that what will be built will be built soon and will be fit for purpose? Well, now, is there any evidence that women who are in court on a domestic abuse hearing are actually being intimidated and this actually affects uh, the outcome as determined by a judge? It's hard to know whether it affects the outcome uh, once they're in there. What we can say for sure is that it makes people very slow to go into the court space at all. People who are being abused, who are in fear of their partner, and that can be women and men, when they have an option of doing anything else other than going to court, they will often choose it. And that often means that they don't feel able. They don't have the strength. They don't have the, uh, I suppose, the, the level of, yeah, just the level of courage and strength required at a time when they're at a low in their lives to go in and spend hours being intimidated because anyone who knows anybody else anyway well, knows that you don't have to physically beat somebody else to threaten them, to intimidate them, to make them feel small, uh, to make them feel unsafe. And that's the problem with our court spaces at the moment. And you look at it in relation to people. I, I think pretty well anyone who goes into a family law court is vulnerable to some extent because nobody really wants to be in that position. But some people have additional vulnerabilities where they've suffered abuse, where they're particularly young, where they have some kind of a disability. Even, you know, even to the point of if you're hard of hearing, uh, there aren't facilities in our courts to be able to let you hear properly what's being said. So, so in some ways, we feel that this door should be open because it has been recognised for more than 10, 15 years that this is really necessary. We need to put this in place 
in, a, in an area of law where people have to engage in a very sad and difficult time of their lives. It's been promised. And this really is just all the organisations coming together saying enough is enough, let's do it now. Well, I suppose many people might ask the question that when the family court was actually built in Smithfield in Dublin, why wasn't this scenario, if you like, addressed at planning stage? Yeah, so there isn't really any purpose-built family court there. There was an office block built, which for some of the uh, family law matters in Dublin, it was converted into court space. Uh, not enough consultation rooms, nothing. It was a converted uh, facility, really. Uh, some of the family law matters that are happening in Dublin, take, for instance, childcare, uh, uh, where children, where, where Tusla is proposing to have children taken into care or kept in care, where you have distressed parents, where you have social workers, the rest of it, all of those are being heard, heard in the slightly converted Bridewell uh, jail and court that was there, which is entirely unsuitable. So it's scattered all over Dublin. Uh, there is uh, bits and pieces of uh, things happening in one place, in, in, in one street. Somebody has to run across to a different part of the city to go to another part of the family court. There is, no, there is actually no family court. And your very point is the one that the 11 organisations are making. While this is being planned, before you put a digger in to dig out the foundations, plan it properly and make it fit for purpose. And really, that, that's not, it doesn't seem like a huge ask. It's not asking for something that hasn't been contemplated and hasn't been promised. This has been in contemplation for the best part of 20 years by government. Uh, and there have been various plans produced. But when we're doing it now, I think what all the organisations are saying, do it now. And when you're doing it, make sure, for heaven's sake, make sure that the physical space is right, that it is accessible to people with disabilities, that there is a space where children can uh, can be, be safe and feel in a good place to give whatever the evidence they have to give in, in a way that gives them justice and make sure that there's enough facilities there for mediation. You know, an awful lot of family law cases never go to court. Mediation is what's needed. You need spaces for that. You need spaces for the legal aid board to have their lawyers in. So just really that's all these organisations are saying. Nothing fancy. Not looking for fancy glitz just looking for all the facilities that families need and that particularly vulnerable victims like the people who are there who are victims of domestic violence including sexual violence so that they can feel safe and so that they can get the access to justice that they need. Well now a coalition I think there's 11 groups in the coalition has been formed if you like to push the point here I mean have you engaged with the Department of Justice already and if so what is the department saying? So the, so the coalition has variously, each of the organisations in the coalition has made this point many times. And it was really, I suppose, in talking to each other. So there, there are six non-governmental organisations dealing with families, all of whom have made that point from time to time. We'd be one of those. There are two community law centres, uh, people who work from a community perspective rather than from a private practice perspective, and three uh, professional associations of family lawyers, every single one of those organisations have been making these points. But in a sense, there's no need really to make them because 
uh, we are told that this court will be built. We are told that there is money ring-fenced for it. And, and really, all we're saying is, when you're doing that, make it an adequate court this time. You get one shot at this. You get one shot at having a dedicated site. Um, and, the, and it should be done well. It should be done in a way that allows all of those who are using the services of the court to get access to the court itself and actually to get a better outcome for their cases because they have access to justice. Uh, Nolene, do you happen to know what the practice is in other countries? So in, in some other countries, so, for, so there would be, for instance, the most comparable jurisdiction is the um, England and Wales and Scotland. And again, they, there they have suffered horrendous cutbacks in recent years as well, as a result of which their lawyers are also complaining that, in fact, families are receiving less and less access to justice. But there would be, for instance, in, in the Canadian system, the North American system, there would be dedicated family courts separate from the other courts so that you're not going through uh, criminal courts or other courts in order to get the family courts. And so and there's loads of practice. And I, I remember nearly 20 years ago now, the first model that was being produced was an Australian model. And at that time, uh, the Minister for Justice uh, was, uh, was Alan Shatter, and he brought over um, an Australian judge to explain how it happens. In Northern Ireland, they have a much more coherent system where they have mediation services in the same spot as other services. So there's loads of good practice in other places. And, and, so, and, and again, we've looked at all that good practice as a country, not just the non-governmental organisations, but the government has looked at the good practice in other places. And we, kind of, we know what it is. It's just that, that fear that we have that it's not happening, even though everybody knows it's wanted and needed, and the fear that something will be built which will not be fit for purpose. And I think maybe this is to um, identify to the Department of Justice and Equality, which will be commissioning it, uh, that, that we are aware of the need for something to be fit for purpose and to say from all our various perspectives, it is essential. Uh, finally, Nolan, I presume this ultimately all boils down to money. I mean, is it a case of building a brand new family court in Smithfield in Dublin or even, if you like, an additional room or two to the existing court? I mean, I, ultimately, it's all about money. Yeah, uh, and and indeed, uh, that's that's a really good question. No, it is a question of building a brand new court. It is not a question of tacking a room on here or there. It is a question of having all of the family law facilities in the one place so that you can access mediation, whether you're in the district court, the circuit court or the high court, so that you can access legal aid when you need it so that there is an accessible space, even if your matter is, whether your matter is a barring order or a divorce. So it is, no suitable building has been identified at any stage over the past decade and a half or two years that you could retrofit to do what a family law court needs to do. It is not like other forms of um, law. You know, it's not like a, a breach of contract where you might go in once. Uh, family law courts tend to be places where people have to come in 
uh, more regularly, where access arrangements have to be changed over time, uh, where uh, where barring orders uh, only last for a period of time and applications have to be made to renew them, where you need uh, dedicated uh, court judges, uh, where you need experienced staff dealing with them in the court services. So, so in a sense, too, Ken, that argument has been won because the site is there. It is in Smithfield. It is allocated to a family court. And it's a question, can we get it built? And as we're building it, can we build one that is fit for purpose? There you go. That was uh, Nolene Blackwell there, CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, speaking to me earlier on. Albert was in touch by text and he says, glad to see that Nolene Blackwell pointed out to you that it can be either women or men after the common assumption you made when you asked, were women being threatened rather than people? Yes, valid point, Albert. Thanks for getting in touch. Now, if you're a regular purchaser of meat, you may want to know where the bulk of the money goes when you hand over uh, your few quid in the supermarket. We'll have more on that after this break. Ken Murray on LMFM. Now, the next time you purchase a cut of beef or lamb in a supermarket and hand over your hard-earned euro, you may be unaware of how much of your spend actually goes to the supermarket. The Irish Farmers Journal has been slicing up the figures and has come up with some very interesting statistics. I'm joined by Owen Lowry, agri-business editor with the Irish Farmers Journal on the line right now. Uh, Owen, what did you find? Uh, well, kind of, I suppose, it, it very surprising uh, for us because this is for the first time ever we've been able to see some sight as to what profit margins and markup there is in fresh produce and particularly meat. Um, and what we have found is that um, the supermarkets, or every one euro that you would spend on meat in a supermarket, uh, the supermarket could be taking up to uh, 50 cents on that one euro spend. So that's a markup of around 40, 50%. Um, and what that translates to is that, you know, for a typical leg of lamb that might retail at 15 euros, the supermarket could be making five euros on that or say a, a beef, a round roast of beef that could retail at 12 euros. Um, the, the, the markup or the margin for the supermarket, the profit for the supermarket could be four euros. So it's significant levels of profit at a time when I suppose we've seen this week where farmers have taken to the gates of the retailers. Now, 40 to 50 percent of a markup seems quite a lot in percentage terms. Uh, Of course, the supermarkets will argue they have staff to pay, they have bills to pay, uh, and that's very much the norm for the business, or is it? Well, I suppose up to this point, we had no visibility at all. And I suppose these were documents that were leaked to ourselves, um, showing uh, the level of markup across a range of products. And when you look at, uh, in particular, the, the level of markups that are, that are there, um, this, there's, there's about um, 50 products which have markups uh, in the fresh meat counter that are above uh, or in double digit figures, which are, are, are very, very high. And even when we see uh, promotions because most uh, fresh produce is sold on promotion as we could see in, in any advertising that they take out on radio or TV or even in the, the, the papers um, they will many times offer offer um, promotions at 33% off or buy one for, you know buy two for the price of one or, or, or that and in these documents that we've seen that there are significant margins even when 33% off um, promotions are applied as well 
So in, in across the range of products, you know, the, the, the meat products counter, the meat counter, you can see um, markups in the range of 30%. And that is significant, especially at a time when farmers are losing 60 to 70 cents on every kilo of, of beef that they are producing. Sure, but is there any evidence to suggest that the consumer is being ripped off because the, the one-man butcher uh, will argue that he or she or they are being squeezed out of the market by the multiples like the Aldis and the Lidls of this world? Well, I think um, for, for, for the most important thing for consumers is that while they might see farmers protesting at gates and that, but what they may not understand is the, the level or where the profit is being made in the entire chain. The fact that farmers are, are selling and producing the beef um, at cost or below cost, um, the, the, below the cost of production of what, of what they're getting for it, um, and then when they see that uh, a leg of lamb can be making five euros and 15 or 34% of it can be going to the supermarket, that's where the imbalance in the in the whole system uh, comes into question. And I think consumers would be very interested to know that while they might think food is expensive, uh, and many many do, even though they spend less than nine percent of their income on food. Um, that that profit share is not going to the person who um, holds the animal for up to three years in many cases, and while a supermarket only holds for a number of hours and can uh, effectively nearly double its money. Okay, we're going to leave it there. And indeed, there are more details on those findings in this week's edition of the Irish Farmers Journal. Thanks there to Owen Larry, Agribusiness Editor with the IFJ. That just about wraps it up for this morning. I want to thank Paul McKenna on sound, Maggie McGuire and Marie Cairns who put the programme together. I'll be back again tomorrow morning just after the 9am news. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.